The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Great. All righty. So uh, we're on item C, which is approval of the agenda. Could I get a motion to approve? Motion to approve. And could I get a second? Second. Second. 
Thank you, everybody who is in favor, say aye. 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 Thank you very much. So that motion carries. So we're on to the next item, which is D, the first public comment. All right, let me see if you have any attendees that are willing to participate. As of right now, I'm only seeing CTN, um, but maybe we'll give them a few moments just to I am not seeing anyone um, waiting to speak. All right, great. So we'll move on to the next item, which is the approval of the minutes from the previous meeting from the September meeting. Thank you, Stephanie, for sending those out. Um, could I get a motion to approve the September minutes? Motion to approve. Thank you, Peter. Could I get a second? Second. Thank you. Um, and could, uh, are there any changes to the, the minutes at all? I should have asked that before I asked for approval. Okay, great. Um, so everybody that approves the minutes say aye. 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 Thank you. So that motion carries. So now we're on to our regular business, the agenda items. All right, so this time around, we decided, Stephanie and I decided and talked about it to invert the agenda because we kept getting to the end and having this problem where we couldn't even get to the content. Um, so we decided to switch it around for this time so we could get to the, the large conversational items that we had been tabling for so long. So that is the reasoning behind that. Um, so the first one, and we could change the order with which we want to talk about this. Um, it just depends on what people want to do. But the first one would have been, or could still be, the producer-only rule clarification, which had been worked on previous to the pandemic. All right. So, Stephanie, do you want to summarize what you see as the primary issues, especially since Eric wasn't here for those conversations? Sure, yes. So there are some, we'll call them gray areas of um, our producer only rule. Because if you look at the rules themselves, it's pretty vague in terms of the uh, wording. Um, the specific wording, and let me pull it back up at the same time from the rules, it says sort of, um, you know, it doesn't really specify details. It basically just says that. Um, and this is in section 5.1, um, subsection B. It says all food and products offered for sale at the market must be grown or made by the vendor who offers the product for sale. So I think a lot of this conversation came about before, meaning, you know, what does it mean to be grown if someone is saying getting plants from a greenhouse? Um, you know, how many weeks does it have to actually be cared for? Um, before it can be considered producer only. I know that's one part of it. Um, and then the other part is there are some gray area vendors um, that would sort of fall under this category of not quite employee of the, the original producer, but sort of a contractor. Um, and, but that's all that they sell. So like, how does that fit in? Um, so really it was just sort of making sure that 
you know, that we don't have just a bunch of exceptions to the rule um, and that this producer only thing, you know, doesn't get watered down and that we are really kind of defining, you know, the fact that we have this, the fact that this is something that makes our market unique um, and sort of all of those things that fall into that category. I don't know if that, that's a very short summary, but feel free to chime in anyone else. Um, I'd like to just chime in. Um, Go ahead. I think Stephanie did a really good job summarizing um, some of the key issues. And I think, you know, one of the best things about our market and one of the things that makes me proud to be a vendor is the fact that it is producer only. And like, we started this conversation before, but I think that further breaking it down and clarifying what that could mean would be helpful um, for vendors and for customers. I think that over the years, just everyone sort of interprets it differently. And so um, I think, you know, you could have one person who's selecting vendors, you know, thinking it means one thing and then another and the confusion just sort of adds I feel like does not help um with I don't know maybe the how the market's perceived and I think it's really important um for partly for that reason um and also just so we don't continue maybe going down some paths that we don't necessarily want to based on precedent but maybe we have an opportunity to um really define what we want going forward, it does not have to necessarily be based on historically what we have had, but maybe like, what is our ideal? Like, what are we really seeking in the vendors um, and our products that we want? Um, and I also think that, and I don't know if Stephanie wants the commission's input on this, but I think that reviewing our inspection process could be beneficial. Um, just, you know, how are we ensuring that vendors are doing, as they say, producing their own products? Because we think that when there is doubt um, that it's happening, that really creates a lot of um, just problems at the market in terms of like, it, it just doesn't feel good to be a vendor with like that doubt hanging in the air and I think if we had maybe a better inspection process and a more clear definition I think that the overall like morale would be a lot better um so those were some of the reasons I felt pretty strongly that it would just be nice to have this conversation further and really set some some guidelines in writing um and if that looks like something we do at our monthly meeting that's great, but also, you know, I thought maybe doing a special committee, this might be a great opportunity for that too, because, um, you know, we haven't had a committee look at something before, but I think that it requires a lot of delving into and talking about it. So that's another idea, not that we have to, but yeah. Great, Stephanie, thanks. Does anybody else wanna comment on anything? And we can go into discussion. And I just wanted to clarify, maybe should have mentioned this, that we're not changing anything for producers, specifically farmers. 
or artisans. I mean, they're always going to have to be the producers of their stuff. This is specifically a conversation of people in the gray area and how we can address that moving forward, especially because we already have vendors that are in the market, right, that are sort of in a gray area. And we certainly want to keep them in the market and we don't want, um, you know, that to be perpetuated as if it's sort of like a, a negative thing. This is a real, a positive focus. Um, and it is also to help market staff in terms of if questions arise about, oh, well, producer only, what does this person have? And what does that person have? And I mean, the inspection process is of course part of it, but that might even be like its own conversation um, because of, you know, previous conversations and, you know, how do we verify Right. If people aren't being the producer, that's a whole nother issue of difficulty. Because again, like we, I know there's a lot of allegations that people always have, um, but there's been really short on evidence um, coming up. So I, I agree with Stephanie that we probably would need to change the format of the inspection um, with, in terms of like su surprise inspections, not pre scheduling things might be one way, but that perhaps may be a separate sort of bullet point on it on its own in this conversation. Although one of my understandings was that the um, uh, clarifying some of the guidelines would be also to help the inspector um, have more guidance on the process as well. And Stephanie, I know uh, you had said that um, Alex was doing some of the inspections, so it'd be great to get his input on, on I think, those gray areas that you, you talked about um, to give us some idea of some of the specific issues that are coming up. And that doesn't mean to postpone it, but just we can identify some things and then, then um, get some input from Alex since he is doing those inspections. Sure. I just don't know that he's done enough as of now, especially because he's been on his break for the last two months um, to like have an opinion about that. But for sure, we can always ask him when he comes back in November. I, I guess another point with this too is that it's kind of as a positive incentive too, in terms of if there are clear guidelines and clear boundaries, then it can say that, hey, I'm a producer and I want to do plans. Well, then that entails that I, I don't want to go into a gray area because it's a gray area. But if it's like, well, if we make a gray area pretty clear and it's like, if you do this and this, you're not in a gray area, you're set. If you do this, you're, you're, you're not set. So just, you know, so making those things as crystal clear as possible potentially does increase the diversity we get in the market too, because then producers are more empowered to produce things that, you know, that might be in the gray area, but not, not in, in a non-gray way, you know, <laughs> so that we get, more of what we're what we seek in that way. So versus just deterring everyone, like ah, I don't even want to touch that area because it potentially might get get in trouble. It's a it's a naughty issue. So I'm just going to move away from that. Sure, and um, I think it also sometimes can put like a double burden on producers that like per se value added producers don't have. Um, whereas you know, as long as they can say I'm blending two items together, this is a product they made versus if you're just putting one item in a bat, you know what I'm saying? And again, there's like, that is, I don't know if there ever won't be a gray area in certain aspects. Um, and the other big one, of course, is plants, right? And I know there's already people being bringing tropical plants. And again, obviously these are things that are not being started 
um, from seed but are being brought in from elsewhere. Um, and the vendors that do this already are going off of like what the commission had talked about before in terms of how many weeks, um, you know, those plants need to be cared for at a greenhouse before they are allowed to be brought to market. Um, and then that's the other thing that becomes very confusing is because we have these rules that other markets don't, you know, it's the question of constraining the capacity, you know, and like making sure that people are only bringing X plants to one market and not the other. So then it becomes incredibly complex um, from an enforcement standpoint as well. So I remember the other one too was with like livestock in terms of if someone gets chicks and then they raise them, when did they get them and when did they when did they sell them? The other one too, I remember was like the honey complexity in terms of does the honey actually live in Michigan? Well, some of the year it's in Florida. And so is that a local product? And is that, you know, so it's like, so it, there are, there are, and there, we, we resolve some of those, but it, it is there, it's just as an example of some of these kind of nuanced areas of products that we want, um, but making sure that we can get something that's not just someone buys to the left and just sells to the right and, and just arbitrage. Not for sure. And I'm also pretty cognizant, like, I don't want to put any undue burden on vendors because again, if people are doing things by industry standard and we say, no, you can't do that, they're going to have to incur a lot more costs um, to be able to do some of these things, which then may put them at a disadvantage and make, may make it so that they can't come to market. So um, it's a very delicate balance. Um, so in terms of like feeder animals, you know, very few people are raising all of their own animals from the very moment that they exist, right? That's very rare. Same thing with plugs. That's very rare that you're getting a vendor. Um, you know, I think we maybe have one that I can think of that does every single seed for their plants themselves. Um, so that's another thing I think we need to be aware of too, um, that we don't want the perfect, so it'd be the enemy of the good. Um, and we also definitely need to, you know, support our vendors um, as well, so. Stephanie, I was curious if since the commission last talked about the plants um, and how long <clears throat> you should be raising them before you can sell them, has that come up? I freeze? Um, oh. Huh? Sorry, I froze. What did oh. you say? Um, I was wondering if it has come up as a question um, from vendors since we talked about it before. Which specific part, just the producer only piece or? No, sorry, the plants, the plant part. So um, how long yeah. you're supposed to have them yeah. before selling? Mm -hmm. Yep, it's definitely come up. Um, okay. And I think it's sort of an ongoing question. Okay. That people still have. Or okay. people saying, you know, I just want to make sure that this is okay. I'm following XYZ protocol. I just wanted to check, you know. So it's more of that in that context that it's come up. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. so you do you think that the guidelines we came up with before um, need to be like added to or changed? I just don't know if people have access to those or if that's ever really been shared with newer vendors. Um, I just don't know what the status is of that. Um, mm -hmm. Because also, like, I think it was a conversation that didn't really go beyond just a discussion phase like I or am I wrong on that was there something that got um you know approved and codified in some way I think there is a document that 
did get approved. Um, that's like a tool for the, sorry, another thing I didn't get to show you, but maybe you've seen it. Um, a tool for the manager to use when talking to new vendors um, or potential vendors. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that outlines it, but it never got like published or sent out. So uh, Stephanie Willette, this is, I'm looking at the document that I, this last I have, it was from February of 2020. <laughs> so in those before times, um, and that's where we'd put in, you had done a great job of, of summarizing a lot of issues. And then it's the other thing that we talked about is that there's checklists for um, uh, not a required practice, but suggested um, to sort of encourage people uh, to, to um, you know, follow the, our, our ideal guidelines, but recognizing that that might not be possible. But there were still a couple things that we were talking about, like on the honey, there's something on cheese, those might not be a big deal. Um, the plants and seedlings, um, there's a little bit of, of red on here for, um, uh, that I think we were yet to, to um, talk about. Um, but the main questions, one of the things that you put on there was uh, about um, soap and body products and um, the rest of this looks pretty straightforward. Um, and oh, the other question was about the plants and seedlings. Do producers need to have their own greenhouse and equipment? That was the other thing that was on the list. Okay. Well, I think, and part of it too is, I mean, this, we created this as a tool mostly for the manager because Stephanie, you're the one who is having to answer a lot of these questions and make those decisions. So, you know, the question is what is helpful to you right now? Um, Sure. And, you know, quite frankly, looking over the draft before, I think some aspects of it are way too overly specific um, because, again, it comes to an enforcement thing. And if we're only having people inspected once every other year, how are we going to verify, for example, that honey producers are performing, you know, three of the following activities, right? And then, so that's sort of like another concern that I kind of had with that. Um, and then also like having to own your own equipment, how does that impact somebody that's maybe using a commercial kitchen, right? And has all the licensing, um, but don't own all their stuff, for example, right? For like in the case of cheese, I know that's in there. Um, so those are some questions that I had, even within um, at least the document as I'm looking at it. Yeah, I think those are really good questions, which is, I think, you know, partly why I wanted to go back and revisit this, I think. And also why sure. in my mind, it is tied to the inspection process. And I, it is, that is a big conversation. And like you said, maybe um, something we need to do separately. And unfortunately, we only have these meetings once a month, but um, sure. the question is, can we enforce the specifics that we are creating, how do we know that's the case? Um, and I think it all boils down to that. And so, um, you know, do we look at doing our inspections differently in order to be able to answer these questions better? Or do we make like 
make it more vague or easier um, to comply. I don't know. Um, I think I'd have to look at each category specifically to be able to decide something like that. But um, yeah, it's hard. It was it was a really difficult thing as a manager to make a lot of those decisions. And I think it's nice to have something to guide because I don't think anything like this existed before I was manager. So. Sure, and I'm not saying like we should have anything. I just feel like it's a little bit too involved and knowing the inspections task team that we currently have, I don't think that they have the ability to sort of figure some of these things out, right? Because that would assume that everyone has in, excuse me, in-depth knowledge of everything from like honey extraction to value-added stuff. And it's like, you know, I might know that, but I don't really have the capacity personally to go out um, and inspect either. So that's, I guess, really the question then becomes like, what is our end goal and how do we want to get there? Do we want to create a system that is, yes, making sure that the producer only thing is intact, but also like not being exclusionary to people either, right? It's sort of like that, um, that delicate balance. And I think a lot of it too is, you know, with Ralph's passing, the reality really is what's going to happen when a lot of our, you know, elder vendors either retire or don't have a succession plan and like how are we really going to attract other farms you know like I don't want to be known as that market that's like impossible to get into um so no one even tries but then again I'm not saying it should just be a free-for-all but like we need to have um that sort of in the back of the mind too I think because that's a reality for unfortunately a large majority of our larger um produce uh, and orchard farms. Yeah, I think it is a good point that a lot of people will be phasing out and we need to be thinking about that. That's a good, definitely a good point. But um, can you, so give an example, I guess I don't understand. Yeah, an example of what that would mean to be less specific, what you were saying. I don't know what that means. Well, I'm just, you know, just going based off of the guidelines, right? Like requiring people to own a certain amount of things, I think is sort of really problematic, especially for smaller operations that may just be getting started um, and don't have the capital to be able to do that. Whereas a lot of it is sort of like privileging the really large farms that quite frankly, either either at market already or really no longer exist. So I think we also need to be able to be dynamic and be able to bring on smaller produce farms um, that may not have access to land in a more permanent basis, right? No, so that's just absolutely. one example. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we were trying to get at to with that was not contracting out, not having someone else basically grow it and then you do the last step and harvest it or something and bring it to market or something like that. So the fear was, or the thought was, if you own your own equipment, then someone else isn't going to be doing the work, is less likely to be doing that work for you. So if there's another way to get at that, then ownership of equipment, then I think that should be explored. So like, that's a great example. 
of. Yeah. So that's exactly what I think is like, if that's really, if like what you said is the goal, we need to have it say that we shouldn't do like a roundabout way that might unintentionally exclude people because we're concerned about something, you know, that might be a result of that, you know? Um, and I'd feel more comfortable doing like what you said, which was like making sure that someone's not reselling. Right. And verifying for us that that is the case. And I don't necessarily say, think that like, you know, having somebody that's really brand new showing us their ownership or their receipts or something is really necessarily go towards that. Plus it kind of sends a strange message. And that's the other part of this is like, I don't want to legislate based from a place of mistrust, right? I want it to be based off on like, we trust our vendors. That's why they're here. Um, because I think, and again, it's a large bunch of vendors it's hard sometimes for everyone to be honest but I think we need to come from that standpoint instead of like oh what if all of these negatives happen let's have all these contingencies which are very unlikely you know what I mean um, because and then it puts an undue burden on the inspector it puts an undue bar burden on the finances of market given just how many hours we would have to pay for the inspection um, to happen on all these extra aspects so you know, I think in the long term, those are other things that, uh, you know, I think about when we're having this conversation too. I think that <clears throat> some of the main things that are the biggest issue are the plants, any anybody who's selling meat, that that sort of thing. I think that's where the gray areas are. Um, I think it's, it, of course, it's all up to determination by you, Stephanie, but. I would say, this is my opinion. Um, I believe we decided on two weeks with the plants. And like I said, like you said, I don't know that it got finalized. Um, my my, my uh, suggestion was two weeks to take care of something in the greenhouse for two weeks is, you know, substantial. Um, and then the other thing is, is I can finish petunias in two weeks, probably a little less actually, if I bought some plugs and planted them turn the heat up and took good care of them, I can finish them in two weeks. So it's not uncommon to finish uh, bedding plants in two weeks from a seedling. Um, any kind of pest problem that you might endure is gonna surface within two weeks. Um, personally, I feel like that's a, that's a, a pretty solid timeline to, to have. That's my own opinion. Um, and then like, as far as the, the meat and stuff goes, my opinion on that is, um, is it okay for me to buy a cow and have it killed and buy it and it's, it's already killed and then I butcher it myself? I would say, I mean, you could call that a gray area, but as long as I was doing that major step of it, I think that that would be, personally, I think that would be acceptable. I don't know exactly how the rules read right now. Um, would it be okay for me to drive to the butcher shop and buy it already all packaged up and then bring it to market and slap a price tag on it? No, but as long as you're doing a step in that that's, that's, uh, that's involving some effort and some, some uh, investment in your, with your time and, and some knowledge, I think that that would be the important thing to look for as far as any of that goes. Um, I don't believe it's right to say anyone has to own anything. And I don't, I don't know that 
it does. Um, I think the rules basically say I could, I could go rent a greenhouse from Stephanie right now. <clears throat> and as long as I was the one taking care of the stuff in it, I think that, and we had a contract, I think that that would not a contract, but like a lease agreement for the greenhouse. I think that that's acceptable. Um, there's no problem with that. I don't think, um, again, these are just my opinions. I'm just telling you guys what I'm, what's up, what I'm thinking while we're talking about all this stuff. Um, obviously, uh, farm ground is leased all the time. A lot of people, somebody could even live in the city and, and, and farm some ground. As far as equipment goes, I could borrow. Uh, there have been a lot of times when something breaks and you call your neighbor and, hey, can I borrow a tractor? My, my tractor is getting fixed or I don't even have one right now. I need to buy a new one. And you borrow the neighbor's tractor. There's no, no problem there from what, from what I can see. Um, and and those, are, those are just some of, my, some of my opinions as I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, listening to everyone talk. I don't know that, um, I, I don't know what we could do to adjust it. Um, can, can you steer us a little more in that direction, what you're thinking, Stephanie? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think this came about because a lot of people had asked a question about let's revisit that conversation we had before and let's iron out the details. And in terms of the document, like it does say uh, buy or lease land, but it definitely says use your own equipment. So I think that's another really great point you bring up that that's not necessarily realistic um, in all situations. Um, but again, so I don't know, maybe what Stephanie was saying is a good idea. Maybe we should go to a subcommittee and have more in-depth conversations about, you know, what makes sense, what's helpful, what's unnecessary. Um, because again, I think a lot of the previous rules that we've been working with, you know, previous to both of us, um, come from a very, very draconian standpoint from my perspective, right? It's coming from a place of punishing people without transgression actually really happening. Um, instead of like, we need to sort of I don't know. To me, I want vendors to feel like we trust them um, because they know how to run their businesses. And I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to create like a punitive system beyond, again, if someone breaks the rule or messes up, obviously there should be some consequences. I'm not saying that, um, but I just don't necessarily think we should have this like 10 bullet point thing on each different product that would disqualify a lot of potential applicants. So I guess maybe the question is further conversations in a, in a subcommittee um, or maybe even um, vendors weighing in on this and what maybe if vendors think that like, is there something that we need to clarify for them um, that would be helpful too? I think maybe let's, I don't know, I would like to see it come from that standpoint. So maybe keep what was worked on before as a, as a draft in the back pocket um, and then maybe you know, revisit this once we've talked to other vendors in terms of what they would like to see clarified. Um, because again, maybe half of this stuff is like things worth thinking about, but it's never been a scenario that has ever come up. Um, so I'm not sure, but that's sort of what I would think in terms of deepening the conversation and steering it towards something that is useful um, for everyone. Eric, did you have something to add? Uh, I, th I think what I was gonna add is, or ask was, more specific, so I'll, I'll leave it for now. I was, I was going to agree with what Jeff said and then just ask a question about meat specifically, but I don't know that that's relevant right now. Okay, great. Thank you. 
So here's my suggestion on going forward is I've actually heard a lot of people talking about the the overall goals of what producer only should be. And so I think this the the document that we we worked on drafting in the before times, um, I think it would be useful to think about uh, or to have something drafted about what the goals are of producer only. And you all, um, talked about um, a lot of those those um, general ideas about what makes the the Anover Farmers Market special because it is producer only. And so, Stephanie, uh, I hear what you're saying about not wanting it punitive. So maybe we start from that positive place of, you know, this is the goal of uh, the producer only market, and we have a very long history of having a producer only market, and then. And and what Jeff was saying about you know producer only means that the the people who are at the market are those that are putting effort into creating what they have um, to sell at the market, and then think about um, what of the document is too specific. Um, so like for meat, I am looking at it and we had talked about needing to raise something for at least half of its life. So, but Jeff just brought up an interesting context of, you know, if you did your own butchering and packaging, how would that fit into the scenario? So um, thinking about getting, especially feedback from specific vendors on um, those sections that are really related to what they're doing um, I think also might be might be a good good position to be in. So and yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I was, was gonna just going to oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say just to clarify, all vendors that sell meat have to be USDA at market. It's got to be a USDA facility. People cannot be at their farm slaughtering. I mean, you can do on farm slaughter if you're having people purchase it direct there, <laughs> but everyone's got to be USDA, and we have all of their licensing paperwork and information about the slaughterhouses or abattoirs rather that they're using um so just want to before that got a little yeah too that's sideways, fine i just wanted to <laughs> clarify that that, that 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 was yeah I, I didn't mean someone could just butcher something at their kitchen table i i meant i, I meant knew what you meant jeff but yeah i wasn't sure others knew what you meant <laughs> um one other thing i'm going to bring up that a lot of people are going to hate me for this but it's something that's always kind of bothered me um, I think that <clears throat> the people can use the the market as a tool to promote their CSA. Am I correct? What do you mean? So you guys have, I think there's even a CSA day, correct? Like, hey, go to this farmer and get your CSA package. There used to be. Uh, we haven't done it since the pandemic, there really wasn't that much interest for this year. The most we did is that there is a page on the website where people can click on it and see like who's offering a CSA. That's as okay. far as we've gone. Or well, if it's well, somebody that I see it online and I'll like share the sign up information for everybody. Yeah, no, no, there's no problem there. My question yeah. is, let's say I offered a CSA. Okay. And I draw these people in with, hey, come get my box of goodies. And then Good point. I'm advertising that I'm putting some stuff in there. Let's say I'm putting bananas and, and oranges in it. Like, sure. mm -hmm. is that okay? 
I mean, it's, no. am I selling that at market? That's a gray area I think that needs to be looked at as well. Um, just because it looks bad on the market. If there's somebody who's offering something in their CSA box, and it's almost like a loophole to, to buy and sell at the market um, to a certain extent. And that's just kind of how I felt about it. So I think maybe while we're looking at all this, that's something that we could kind of look at as well, just so that everything's cut and dry and there's no gray areas there as well. Sure, and yeah, yeah I was gonna say, just to clarify, um, Tantra, for example, has two separate CSAs. They have their immune booster box, which is what they partner with a lot of other businesses. And that is never available at market. That's only for pickup at the food hub. Um, and then their other one is just like their produce 100% grown by them. And, but you're right, you know, like we need to at least tell people that that's expectations and not just expect farms to like do the right thing, for example. Right. Well, honestly, the person I'm thinking of who was the biggest offender of that isn't even at the market anymore. Um, they don't even come to market. And it, I, I wasn't, I think Tantra is very good at following the rules for the market. And I think he yeah. really has, I'm, I, that's not, I wasn't. I, I know, wasn't I was just giving an example. <laughs> oh, I, I get it. Um, but the, the person I was thinking of isn't even there anymore. So it's not even an issue currently. I don't, I don't think I haven't, I don't look in everyone's boxes, but, um, but it's just something that I just wanted to mention. Yeah, I think that's a really good point for sure. Um, and I think, and you know, CSAs unfortunately are becoming less popular over the last few years. I think maybe because there's just so many other options, but I agree that's maybe something that we should write into this as sort of a sidebar for producer only just reminding people that CSAs available at market are just produced by them. And if you're gonna have an aggregated CSA, you're just gonna have to have a different pickup location. I think that's that's pretty cut and dry. I guess so, if I could add something in too, that there, you know, I, I keep hearing, it's kind of there are three areas we're trying to make this work in terms of the consumer view of having these being producer only and that what the consumers see and that's, sometimes different than what the farmers who are there who maybe know more of how the processes work and what's likely there. So the, the consumer view, the the morale of the market for the, particularly the producers in terms of if they feel if something's unfair um, because someone is not doing the work and someone else, and well, I'm doing the work. So that making sure that's important. And then producer clarity in terms of what what can the producers actually do and what is kind of what's what's going to fly and what what doesn't which goes against it and so having some clarity also i hear within this that with those kind of three goals that there's all these there are a lot of hypotheticals in terms of as to things that someone could do and we can try to write all the rules to try to encapsulate strictly everything in all futures which is a very hard task and often will be very rigid and very difficult to enforce um and so the other thing that the other way to do it is kind of a it's like a procedural justice kind of thing too, in terms of if there were like someone says, you know, like it, let's say it's like an, or an optimism or something where like if someone says that there's someone makes a, a, a anonymous or private issue and says, okay, I think this this thing, something's going on here, have a, some mechanism for on which that there's a, a question is raised, a process, a transparent process is um, is discussed, that result is shared and that there's a clear call in terms of, no, you can't do that, or yes, you can. 
and that's then resolved. And that helps for the producers, that helps for the the morale in terms of it's like this is fair, and that also helps for the consumers in terms of the consumers. If a consumer could potentially say something like, "Hey, this doesn't apply. I'm getting I'm getting bananas in my TSA," um, then that okay, that's something right. to investigate, and that might actually help to narrow down what you're talking about with the overhead issue. Because if we, you know, every six months or every three months have surprise inspections of everyone in all this way. It's just like, it's so much to do <laughs> versus tracking down based on a, uh, some random and some specifically, uh, or some regularly scheduled and some specific inquiries about like, Hey, you know, we're, we've received some, some notice that this might be a little off. We, let's, can we discuss? And I think that might be a more efficient way to handle it. And also again, but with it also being transparent. So the, those results are shared. It's not just like between purely between the market manager and the and it's a it's a dicey thing because it'd be nice if it were like, hey, you know, this has been investigated. We clarified, in fact, it clarified kind of what we're looking for. It's like that's a it's like case law in some ways, but it's like here's a little section. This is what the question was. This is what the determination was, and here's kind of the reasoning. And but it doesn't mean it's like it has to be exactly like that every time, but it kind of it sets some sort of a, a kind of rolling standard. And that might be the living document that kind of goes through this of like, well, we had this happen to this time, this had this time. Okay, I have some idea of the narrative of how that goes. That might be a more time efficient and fairer and more adaptive too. As things change, come on, it's like, well, these are extenuating circumstances. Everyone's extenuating circumstances. That's always the way it's going to be. You know, everyone everyone is special in that way. And I think that's, that's reasonable. So. Thanks. Thanks for that, Peter. Um, so here's my suggestion on how we move forward on this is, um, Stephanie, if you could maybe think about writing the, the what the goal is um, for producer only and thinking about those, those general things about it's an idea that the producers that are at the market um, have put some effort, a fair amount of their effort and creativity into the process of creating what they have at market. Um, I think Peter's good uh, idea about having a process of, of if there are complaints at the market, um, you know, I think it would be good to have um, something written out about the complaint so that there's a document of it and, and a process for thinking about um, how that would then be resolved. Um, does it mean a surprise inspection? Does the market manager take care of it? Any and all of those, those possibilities. And then Stephanie, if you could also take the draft document and identify those things that you think are um, exclusionary and way too specific. Um, I think that would be helpful. And um, my suggestion is that either we all look at that next meeting or we decide now that that goes to a subcommittee and the subcommittee can work on it and um, uh, tweak it um, and figure out the process for getting uh, potentially some vendor input. And then, and then it comes back to us for a, a sort of final review. So that's I, that's two different options. Mm -hmm. I just want to say I do think uh, we need to be careful about documenting complaints and responses, just not to create a toxic uh, culture around that. If there's someone who the complaint is about, we don't want it to 
you know, become like Stephanie was saying, we wanted to be more, we wanted to be positive. Um, and in a lot of these cases, I think when complaints would come to me, um, it was kind of important to keep the identity of the vendor uh, quiet until we were able to resolve a lot of these things or figure out like, is this true, is it not, that kind of thing. So just be aware of that. But would you all, uh, you, you two people who have been market managers, would it be helpful for you to have the complaint written out? So again, it would be kept private, but it would be written out instead of the, you know, lots of talking that happens at the, the market. So, and you don't have to resolve this now. I just want to bring that up that, you know, if somebody's going to lobby a complaint, it makes them commit to that complaint if they have to write it down on paper, even if it's just go into the office and take three minutes and write it down. So anyways, that's a suggestion. We can all think on this because we only have 45 minutes left. Yeah. But um, So um, Stephanie Stauffer, uh, how would you like to go? Would you like to write up a document, give it to us again, or do you want to have it go into subcommittee? Because I think this is ultimately going to be um, you having to organize this? I mean, you know, the subcommittee, I think, could be helpful in that we could bring on other vendors, right? It doesn't just have to be PMAC, right? We can bring on other people that have concerns about this specific issue. Again, who knows? Maybe you don't want to bring on other vendors, but um, that could be a really good way to get other people's feedback and maybe get pick some new brains um, that haven't necessarily been thinking about this. It, at the level of detail this body has been. Um, so I think that could be helpful. I also, you know, the thing about writing down the complaints, right, they happen so infrequently. I don't know um, if that's really needed. And the time that we did a, a surprise inspection, that was actually a customer complaint. That was not a vendor. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, if they'd even be willing, uh, you know, I don't know if a customer would want to do that sort of thing, because they usually just come to us in confidence and like, we'll go talk to the vendor and then that's usually resolved right then. And it usually does not need to go to the level of like getting another inspection involved. So I guess I don't know <laughs> the answer to that, but I don't know if the written complaint process is really that necessary. But maybe... I guess the one part is, go ahead, is I, do, I wanna make sure we could learn from that too, or that somehow that folks could get something from that in terms of if there is a let's say a, let's say the someone does have a complaint and then they can write it and feel like it was like to feel or know that it was like looked into and again that there's it's again I, I suspect right now that's just kind of done through communication if you talk to them I mean what a rational thing uh but in sometimes if if that is that it's one person makes the complaint how do you make sure that if it's they're the tip of the iceberg and there are a bunch of other people or that we're also worried about that and it's like was this actually addressed or that there's again that deals with the morale but i hear what stephanie what was saying too in terms of is all it becomes an inquisition um that it becomes a really uh hostile environment so i don't know exactly how to uh split those differences and how to do that in a in a way that would everyone would feel okay about so i, I acknowledge that's a challenge but and I, I think too, a lot of the allegations are made without evidence, right? And that's the other thing, like people talk, people get really riled up, people heard something through the grapevine, and then the next second, they're like totally convinced 
that somebody did something when there's like literally no evidence. Um, and then that people get to start talking. So I think the vast majority of like complaints, which I wouldn't even necessarily categorize as that because it's more just sort of like, you know, market <laughs> market talk. Um, that is, I think, the main cause. And even if we do things like surprise inspections, you're not going to convince the people that were already saying all these things without evidence. So that's another probably philosophical question um, that is also embedded in this uh, as well. Well, actually, maybe relate to that in terms of what Lisa was saying with the written thing in terms of it's like a process where instead of just talking, it'd be like, well, if you do have something here, present write me up the thing that says what is the thing what's the allegation what's the evidence for it and then submit that as a written form which there's a path a process and that goes to the market manager the market manager then does stuff with it and then replies back to the person who made that lodged the formal complaint so it's a formal complaint process versus an informal complaint process well and we that would also have... potentially filter out with the yeah, I was going to say we already have an incident report form, so we could easily just use that if we had to without having to recreate the wheel. I think that sounds fine. I think what I'm hearing is, though, that that some transparency in the process and also a way to stop the rumor mill that happens at the, the market would would be. <laughs> yeah, well, I know that. <laughs> Well, except Stephanie, I'm thinking about it in terms of you also teach too. And I tell students that if they're going to come in with a grade complaint, they have to write it out for me because it makes them be more thoughtful about their grade complaint. And that's fine. We we talk about it together, but but the process of having to think through it um, and, um, helps them also think about why they're lodging the complaint. Um, so anyways, that's that's the place. But what I hear, what I, I'm thinking is that uh, general goals for what producer only uh, looks like, why it's important, um, maybe some sort of process for complaint, and then thinking about the document identifying where things are too specific. Um, and my suggestion is that could you put that um, together and then also, um, the process of doing a subcommittee, because I've read those guidelines, but they're out of my head right now. Um, and then then, um, then just to inform us what's going to happen for next meeting and then, then start moving forward on the subcommittee. I'm pretty sure you just have to vote it into existence, as far as I know. Okay, so the question is, do we want to do that now, or do we want to get more documentation uh, to Stephanie to revise the the um, information as we've been talking about, and then um, voted in next meeting? So I'd like to hear from the other commissioners if they have any ideas. I would be for just voting it in now. I mean, why not? Unless we're not sure that we want to do it. Um, Seems like it'd be nice to just keep it moving along. Okay, do yeah, we need... I agree. I think it's a complicated enough thing too. I agree. Um, Stephanie Stoffer, do we need to set any goals for this subcommittee? I mean, it 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 seems like it should have some guidelines. <laughs> it's not just like we're creating a subcommittee, creating a subcommittee to uh, review and make suggestions on the producer only. Um, uh, rules um yep. sounds good okay so can uh so you'll write that up in the notes then 
Yep. Okay. All right. So I guess we have a motion to create a subcommittee um, to uh, review the producer only uh, rules and guidelines for the Ann Arbor farmers market. Um, could I have someone um, uh, approve that motion? Uh, I approve. And second. I approve. Can raise, okay. I second. Uh, um, <laughs> and everybody, so I think everybody's raised their hands, so we'll say that motion's carried, and um, um, you'll update us on the subcommittee. So, um, uh, and I'd, I'd like not only a, uh, about what the subcommittee's doing, but then just some general uh, information on um, who will be on the subcommittee, too. It doesn't have to be specific names, but if you say, you know, inviting in several vendors to cover these issues like meat and flowers and plants, that would be perfect. Stephanie and Jeff, do you wanna help with recruitment of folks to the subcommittee? Definitely. Okay, sorry, Jeff, but you're on the hot seat. <laughs> cool. All righty, since we've only got 35 more minutes, I'd like to hear from the commissioners whether we should talk about the annual stalls, um, specifically related to the artisans, especially since there was just move up that happened, or should we do the seniority transfer process, um, which do you think is more, um, one of these has to be tabled, because I don't think we're going to get through them both, but I, I won't say has to be, but I'd like your your um, ideas on what the priorities should be. It seems like the seniority or the um, change of seniority one might be a little simpler. Um, we might be able to resolve it more quickly. So my vote would be to try and address that, um, see if we can get through it. All righty. So Stephanie, do you wanna summarize the issues for us? Yes, so this, we have a very involved transfer of seniority process. It has three main components. The first being in case of vendor death, what happens, who is able to take over the process by which they can transfer that seniority of the business um, to a family member. There's also what happens when a vendor retires. Um, and then the last one is if someone is selling a business. So already in the rules, there's those three di different things. And, you know, I think most of it's fine for me though, the main issues I really thought were like the, the day limit, because a lot of these things need to be done within 30 days, within 60 days. Um, and especially in cases of bereavement, I feel like that's a little too quick for a 60 day turnaround to have to have an application where people may not be sure about, you know, if people are continuing, um, you know, and I thought that that was a little bit, you know, People have a lot of other things going on. And a lot of the thinking behind this is, you know, we do have a vendor who's very ill. And once they found out about their illness diagnosis, the first thing they said to us were like, well, we need to make sure that this is a person we're gonna have the three year thing in place. So they were like trying to be very much by the rules. And although I appreciate that, it also um, sent sort of a strange message to me. It's like they weren't even thinking about their own health. They were more worried about losing their seniority. So I didn't want to, perpetuate that, but I think mostly for me, um, all the questions I had was, you know, should we make it a longer turnaround time of than either the 30 days or 60 days um, to apply for transfer that is currently in the rules? 
and extending it seems to make total sense. I mean, I have no problem with that. But um, do you have an estimate or an idea of what seems reasonable for six months, a year? I mean, you know, I thought in terms of the bereavement, I thought that 90 days would be fine, just giving an additional month, um, three months instead of two months. We can even go longer. I'm not sure. Um, so that one is for that. And then in terms of the retirement, it's got to be 30 days within the date of retirement as well. So I think maybe we could bump that one up to 60. Because again, there might be a lot of extra things going on and 30 days goes by very quickly, especially during the season. Um, so that was my main sort of feedback that I had on that. And the same thing, maybe just change anything that was 30 to 60 days and change anything that was 60 days to 90 days. And that was my entire idea about that as of right now. That sounds fine to me. Does yeah, that it? make sense? Yeah, that sounds great. And it right. seems like there's always an opportunity for communication anyways, right? So yeah, 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 exactly. Because again, too, some people are really great on email, can do it really quickly. Other people, it's we have to wait for the mail. There's other things going on. People have to wait for sales of properties potentially to go through. So there's a lot of things that, that could happen. So I think that's relatively simple. So do we need to vote on that as a change or can we just say that's good? I'm not sure. Sounds like we have unanimous consent. Yeah, okay. I think so. I think so, yeah. All right, great. <laughs> um, do the guidelines need any sort of statement about if you're having problems meeting these deadlines to communicate with a market manager um, to open let that door? Or do you not want to worry see. about it? Uh, I sort of, let me see if it says something already. I think there's always a case that if they can't make it, that they can submit something to the community services administrator. But let me double check. Or maybe that's just an appeal if they don't go through. Um, sorry, I'm trying to read quickly. I think yeah. there might just be something for getting your application for in on time, but not yeah. for. Yep, I think you're right. Yep. Yeah, we can have something like that too. That's just, you know, if if special consideration is needed, let the market manager know or, or something like that. I think that sounds great. Stephanie, you brought up though another time period, which is the um, um, sales um, and maintaining uh, seniority at, uh, you know, if a farm is being, the ownership of a farm is being transferred. And that I think in the guidelines does say that the, that um, person needs to work on the farm for three years. Sure. Um, We're not changing that part. Okay. All right. I just wanted to to ask about that. Yep. No, that's, I was just giving that as an example because I was sort of like, wow, this person <laughs> is so worried about this, that their, their serious health problem is taking a backseat yep. um, to worrying about that was more the main reason I brought that up. And um, I don't want an answer for this uh, right now, but I just wanted to ask because I know there's a couple of vendors that 
um, are grandfathered in at four stalls and does that transfer of seniority mean um, that it transfers all four stalls or does it revert to the three stalls? And you don't have to answer this now, but I just wanted to bring it up as another issue. Transfer of seniority. It reverts to three stalls. Okay, great. Thank you. Yep. Okay. And that's really only two vendors at this, or three, yeah. I guess. Good point. So that would be in play for one of the, yeah, one of the vendors. Yeah. All right. Okay, great. Good. Thank quick. you. There you go. Nice and quick. <laughs> Good. Thanks. We're being All right. productive now. So now we're um, to the artisans uh, market and I wanna um, see if we can get some progress made in about 15 minutes on this one um, so that we have time for the rest of the agenda. Um, so uh, where I remember us letting off last time at the se September meeting, so there had been approval of um, two that the, the annual artisans vendors could have two stalls. Um, and then what we had talked about was limiting the number of stalls um, for annual artisans vendors that we talked about a percentage of stalls and decided that it would probably be better to set a number limit on those stalls. Um, so that's where I, um, Jeff and Stephanie, you were at the meeting. That's what I remember us, us talking about. Does that sound right? I see. I'm sorry, Peter. Uh, I see Peter nodding his head. So, all right. Yep. So, uh, Stephanie, with the move up, how many annual, how many stalls are assigned to annual artisan vendors? Out of the I believe I looked at it earlier today. I think one second. I believe it's seventeen. Because there was like the third, so the person who got her seniority was the 13th person based on the special situation from before. Um, and if we wanted to give them the, ca the capacity to get a second stall, that would be 18 total. And then the other producer was a hot sauce vendor that got their seniority. Who, who grows a bunch of his own peppers, actually. But I think that's what we had talked about. Okay, so I guess that's, uh, um, there's two issues there. There's one, um, how many stalls could go to annual artisan vendors? And then for an artisan that moves into the, from a daily to an annual status, do we also want to give them the option of having two stalls if there are stalls available that are allotted to artisans? Well, in this case of Dana, I mean, she was already within the 13 from before, and she does actually use two stalls. So it would be creating a whole nother situation again, potentially um, if we didn't bump it to 18, just to give her the second stall she uses. But then remember if we kept it based on the previous um, once there would have to be another artisan 
or would it have to be two artisans to retire then before another artisan moves up? If we had a sort of blending of the current and past edits. Thoughts? I just did a little math and um, taking it up to 18 stalls out of all the annual stalls would be, we'd be at 13% of the stalls assigned to artisans. And there's only 20 total artisans in the entire market. So that would mean only seven of them don't have their annual status. And currently after this particular move up, um, Stone Cloud, she's sort of on the edge of retirement, although she might come back just with pawpaws in the future. Um, but say she retires, then we still have the first at least three dailies in the list are artisans after that, but none of them use two stalls. Yeah, I think one of the things we talked about last time was um, adding in the merging of the lists was going to make things complicated. So I think if people are okay with it, I'd like to just uh, resolve um, number of stalls um, that artisans, <laughs> do we want to make it standard so that as an artisan becomes an annual vendor, that they are always allowed to um, ask for two stalls? Um, or do we want to create a two-tiered system again, which means we're going to be revisiting this issue probably within the next year or two? <laughs> um, or, uh, and then how many stalls should be assigned to artisan vendors um, at the market. I, I think at least my understanding too is that we'll, if we have artisans, annual artisans then can get assigned two stalls. It's just kind of a the, the change a change in policy. It seems like that as a in going forward that that seems like that's that was my understanding of kind of where we were going last time. And that seems reasonable and also doesn't create that blood um so yep and in terms of the artisans that are daily vendors only one of them uses two stalls so of the remaining seven that is there's only one that uses two all so right then... so it sort of may be a non-issue moving forward stephanie you wanted to say something Oh, no, I was just going to say I'm leaning toward, you know, making it um, so in the future, artisans can request a second stall annually. Um, that makes sense to me, or like Lisa said, it's, we might have to revisit it again. Okay, so I hear consensus on that in terms of the, the rules. Um, um, and then the, the other issue is uh, how many stalls uh, of, of should go, should be assigned to be used by annual artisan vendors. Well, wasn't that the question is, should we integrate the list or should we set a number of stalls? Is that, or are we like, I'm confused. So, so I thought last time we had talked about maybe what we should do is um, talk about whether we wanted to have a number of stalls assigned. Um, we had also talked a little bit about do we want to say up to a percentage of stalls assigned to annual artisan vendors, but 
um, what I remember us coming to was saying it might be better to do a number of stalls um, and that we would table the merging of the lists because that was going to make things a lot more complicated. And we still, we still have to decide the makeup of the annual vendors at the market anyways. Um, and then the merging of the lists could be something um, that is based on those um, that what we decide in terms of number of stalls um, at the, the market. Because if we set the number of stalls for artisans at a certain limit, then uh, there can still be move up of producers and the artisans need to wait until an artisan retires from one of those artisan vendor assigned stalls. Does that make I, sense? I wonder if a third possibility up there that might be even clearer, because if artisans can be one or two stalls, then if we have the total number of stalls and if someone says I need one, but then I need two, then that it is confusing. So a different one would be to have a fixed number of artisan annual vendors. And so that, and that then it, that no more annual artisan vendors would be listed in the annual artisan vendor until one retires. And then another one on the list could, who has seniority would move up into that list and have the option of one or two. So it wouldn't be on a per stall basis. It would be on just a slot for being an annual artisan vendor. Um, and that would maintain the mix without having, and not get confusing if someone shrinks down their process, grows it up, or there's one annual stall, but I need two, or I'll take one, but maybe I'll get two. I don't know. It's, it, I don't know how that went. I know some of the vendors never need two. A lot of them could always use two, but can have one and find another. And so it's like, I, at least I don't know how that, that, that seems complicated to me. Um, I'm not the one who deals with it. So but <laughs> it might that would be a simpler way to do it. So yeah, I think there's in essence three options based on what everyone is saying. It's either remove the discussion of numbers from the rules right now and then revisit the blending of the list later and just have it say vendor artisan annual artisan vendors can have up to two stalls. The other option is keep a specific number of how many stalls that vendors can have who are annual artisans and then constrain who can move up based on that. Uh, and then the third option, which I don't think we're ready to talk about right now, would be blending the lists and get getting, getting rid of any caps on vendors. Is that sort of a summary of what we've been talking about? Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, okay. I think you know, I think the having a certain number of artisans being able to be vendors or annuals, and then they can take up to two stalls um, instead of just posing a stall limit sort of makes sense to me. Um, also, I'm keeping it maybe at the current number for now also seems to make sense. Um, because I, I, I don't know if we were to increase it, like what that number would be or what that number would look like. So Stephanie, sorry, I don't remember numbers very well. Um, how many of the annual vendors are artisans? How many 
artisan annual vendors are there? There's 13, remember, because that was the special magic number that you all had figured out a couple of years ago. So that one person retired and took that 13th spot. Okay. So if we were to give the four additional stalls that were rewarded, that would bring us up to 17 plus one would be 18. Okay. So in terms of stalls being used by permanent annual artisans at the current moment. So we could have a baker, baker's dozen of, of <laughs> annual art. <laughs> Just like as that a, number 13. Yeah. As a quick reminder, like it in the rules, it's 12 and yeah. it was 12. And then when we voted to move it to 13, we said, we will have it at 13 for the next three artisans. And then it will revert back to 12. Um, so that was what the motion was a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, we can- Does that mean we have one more then? Because there was just Novochkov, now Dana. Um, then wouldn't would then that be Steven? No, or... I think it was, no, it was, Anne was included in that three. Oh, gotcha, okay. I was not here for that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the motion technically was to go back to 12 again after those three. Um, we can make a new motion and make it 13 um, permanently. Um, if now, now that we're doing it again, and I, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to that, but because um, 12 and 13, there's not a huge difference in my mind. Um, but yeah, we, that would just be a new, new motion. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that too, that we had it as kind of a floating temporary rise and then coming back to the dozen. And so that actually would then keep it back to kind of where the the rules were with that with a but with the extension of two two stalls, two annual stalls are possible for that. So and it, but it would have been 16 instead of 12. Right. Because before it was 16. only one stall per person. What, no, what we added four. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's why the 18 corresponds to it being 13. Uh -huh. okay. With only yeah. five people getting a second stall. <laughs> Got <it>. Fuzzy logic. <laughs> <with> math. <laughs> anyway. But it seems like from what I'm hearing with this, it seems like the merging of the lists is kind of, I don't, I don't feel, I don't hear a lot of excitement for the merging of the lists. And so it sounds like it's either a fixed stall assignment, number of stalls or a fixed number of annual artisan vendors. I think the, the merging of the list is a more complicated uh, issue that's gonna take a longer time to have a conversation. So the idea was that we make some progress, um, which we've made progress on that annual artisans can have, can request two stalls if they so desire. So, and then there's the other issue of, it sounds like we have consensus that there should be um, a, uh, a cap on the, the number of annual vendors who are artisans. Um, and um, So we can just stick to what we had before, which was a temporary move up to 13. 
um, but then would revert to 12 um, within the time frame uh, that that we had set, or um, I guess we could move it also to 13, um, or we could shelve this issue and talk about it later too. I think, I mean, what I was hearing was the consensus was 13 because it makes so little sense to move it back after we're already here. Because then again, even though it is the rules, you know, it's going to upset somebody. So let's not, let's not if we don't have to, I think. I think that makes sense. I think kind of going for sometimes when making policy too, it's like you go for continuity in terms of it's like, this is this, this is the slope we're going on. We'll, we'll not make a, a, a bend in that and, it, but we'll, we'll lock it at that. And I think that seems like that seems, that seems reasonable. Jeff and Stephanie, do you have any any input on that as as people who are at the market and have to live with the decisions? No, I think that making it 13 permanently is wouldn't harm anything and would kind of keep us going in the same trajectory in terms of like just getting us on that. Go ahead, All Jeff. I have to say about that is my job here is to represent all the all the annual vendors and i am going to hear a lot about this well artisans are also annual vendors and we're talking I, about I, I know i know i'm just uh you know i i can't just speak for myself on all this stuff i have to yeah you know sure. vo voice for everyone else yeah and I did just want to clarify that everyone impacted by this has been at the market a minimum of 27 years. Yeah, we know. They are all just as much a part of the market as me and Stephanie. So, yes. Thank you. All right. We're ready to speed through the last bits. Okay. So, um, Stephanie, um, because this is a change to market rules, can you write that up so that we can then have something clear to vote on for, for next time? Sure. And it's also going to be folded into the process that we're sharing with council just so that we can not have yeah. to do that two to yes. three separate times. And Right. So um, just so that we have everything so that we can see it is, is if you could write up the artisan thing and then just the, the changes uh, to the seniority process, which we've talked about, but just so you have the commission set of eyes to also see it and then we'll vote on it and you can go to council and say, we, I have a unanimous vote on these things. So for next meeting, um, if you could just draft those sections you don't up think for us. We can vote on it right now. I don't know. How does everybody feel? I, I think we potentially could. I'm fine with voting on it. I know it usually you vote on something where you actually have the written final document in front of you um, versus and we can vote on the idea that I think I think everyone agrees. It sounds like that pushing it to 13 as that number. I hear consent there, but in terms of having a final formal, this is the written thing that we've got. This is what we approved versus, did we, I don't know, that, that at least from my recollection of how the process usually works is that then having a, a formal, this is the, gonna be the text, we approved the text uh, that goes then to council. It's just that it would be literally three sentences. <laughs> you know, it would be one well, that but, says, 
put the word two instead of one. It would be another that says the word 18 instead of 12. And it would be another change that says 13 instead of 12. Nothing else would be changed at all. Yeah. So, you know, we're supposed to be doing process here. So, uh, Peter, you're the expert on the process. So, <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I can I, show I, it to you on like with the screen sharing. I was working on this earlier today. That's why I know the specific details to the sentence about it, but it's okay. You know, it's your commission. So do what you see fit. I, I guess the question is, are we in, are, do we need speed to get this so that we can get it before next time? Or is it, is this really, is, is this a timely issue? I think it would be helpful because the longer we wait on this is the longer we have to wait on all the other rule changes um, going through to council. Mm -hmm because it doesn't make sense because the process is like, I have to share everything with the city attorney. They have to go through it. Then it has to go through the city services administration. And that's even before it can even go to council to be voted on. So, you know, I think mm -hmm. it would be helpful considering this is like the third meeting um, we've talked mm -hmm. about this too. But again, it's up to you all. Yeah, I, I think that I, I guess I'm I would feel more comfortable if it were something just that we had it. It was in the record in the notes with this particular text. It's all this is the final form. It's in our records. It's all all above board. We've got it all clear. I think that I think that would feel more comfortable to me, at least as one okay. of the mission commission. So I agree. Sure. I agree. Sure. No problem. OK, great. All right, thank you all for your hard work. So let's run through the, the next items on the agenda, which are facilities and staffing updates. All right, I'll be as fast as I can. So biggest facility update is they finally power washed the roof about, I believe it was last Monday. Um, so that was very exciting because we had been waiting, I don't know, three years uh, for that with the pandemic and everything. Um, other facility things, there really isn't any other than that. That's the big one. We did have some issues with the sinks on at market. I think there was a special event last week. Um, and I think someone poured something into the women's bathroom sinks that they should not have. So they sort of overflowed during market on, or not fully filling out, but they were clogged on Saturday. Um, we had to close them, but that is all fixed. There was also extraneous signs, stop signs and stuff hit that have been fixed. So everything is fixed except for we're still waiting for Park Ops to fix the light in the men's bathroom stall. And in terms of staffing, Alex, we're hoping we'll be back in two weeks. It all depends on the, the slowness or fastness with which his HR paperwork can go through. And uh, the other update I have is that we've had a lot of volunteers helping. Um, ironically, last Saturday, we had a bunch of extra volunteers, but the Saturday before that, we were very short staffed and uh, struggling. So, you know, <laughs> when it rains, it pours. Um, but luckily, I, we're in a good place um, for additional staff in the next couple of weeks before Alex gets back. And that's all I got for that all item. Right. The next thing is the events. Well, we had our final food truck rally of the year last night. We were very concerned about the coldness. Uh, but hey, you know, the sun came out right before the end of market, of course, 10 minutes before the end of market on earlier in the day. 
um, and it was pretty well attended. Obviously not the same as a summer one, but still really good turnout given the weather. Um, with that said, we are planning on having a small Halloween themed Wednesday trick or treat for kids next week, uh, 10 to one during market. We reached out to Give365 and they are as well sort of overextended. So they don't think or did not think that they could pull off a Saturday event. Um, so we're going to do the Wednesday instead, and that's 10 to 1. There's going to be games, activities, costumes, candy, all that good stuff for kids and everyone of all ages who is in the Halloween spirit. Right. And I think that's all that. that I have um, for events for this month. Great. Were specific to us. We were involved in the so-called local food fest last week, but that was an office sustainability and innovation event that we helped partner with. Um, so again, also a very cold day last Thursday. Great. But that's Constru it. construction updates. Well, they have been telling us that the fourth avenue intersection at catherine was going to be opening for probably the last three weeks it's still not uh, open there was a water main break in the midst of everything that that put some things back um so they said next week you know hopefully soon it will be back open um but i know that uh and they said southbound maine would probably open next week as well so uh, we have been getting feedback from some customers that it's been very difficult for them to get to the market. Um, although, you know, on the day that was the most difficult was also one of our busiest Saturdays in a really long time, two weeks ago. So go figure. Um, and we are still not sure of the date exactly when the 330 Detroit Street Development will start, um, but they did put up a construction explainer sign about it. So I would assume it's sometime coming up in November. And that's all I have on construction updates. Okay, great. So we're on to new business, non-agenda items. Um, I just want to mention that I was at the local food fest and it struck me that this was a great time to also talk to Missy Stoltz uh, uh, of the Office of Sustainability and asked her if um, the farmer's market and thinking about the, the infrastructure project, which we often call the winterization project, could be folded in to some sustainability initiatives within the city and, and that I would be excited to explore those possibilities. And she said um, she, she was supportive. So um, um, Stephanie, I know she was gonna talk to you about it too. And um, I, you know, I think everybody's been busy <laughs> too. So, um, you know, I think, uh, if if she also told me that there's there's a fair amount of money floating around the city right now, so it might be a good time to bring up some of those issues. Um, and I just dream about the day when the farmers market could be one of the showcases of sustainability here in the city of Ann Arbor, not only for environmental things, but what the market does so well, which is economic and social sustainability. Um, in terms of local food. So anyways, I just wanted to bring that up that I don't know if the conversation will lead anywhere, but um, I did. Yeah, I have not heard from her yet about that, but I will say the market is the center of sustainability in the city and always has been. So we just need FYI. to get the city to invest in that center of sustainability. So um, 
you know, for those of us who are taxpayers in town, we can, all we can do is rattle the cages. So I think we need to rattle them hard um, and, and loudly and um, uh, frequently right now. Um, so if anybody else wants to join me in this mission of rattling cages, let's do it. So, all right, any other new business? Okay, so we're now on to our second public comment. All right, is there anyone that would like to give a comment to the commission in this public comment period? I'm seeing at least one other person on the call. Let's see if they end up raising their hand. We'll give them a few moments. All right, I am not seeing a hand raised. All right, so uh, it's uh, 7.01 and we can adjourn. All right. All right, so Stephanie will get us the written stuff about the, the changes and then um, just uh, uh, you guys will work on the, the subcommittee um, for the, the um, producer only rules. Next time, look forward to getting a report on it. Sounds good. Thank you guys Great. so much. Thanks, everybody, Thanks, for everyone. your hard work. Bye. Well, a lot done. So See you at the enjoy. market. See you at market. <laughs> okay. See you. Thank you. Bye.